Good morning. It's great to see you guys. It's great to be here. Uh, first question of the day is, is my mic on? Can you hear me? Okay, good. Just making sure. I never checked to make sure that was on. Uh, really great to be here in this space. Uh, it's an honor to get to be among you at St. Paul's. Um, I was telling somebody this morning as I was talking to them, uh, this was maybe the first church that I was able to visit. Um, it was uh, certainly the first church that I presented on about this dream or this idea of opening a safe home for survivors of human trafficking domestically. Uh, if you're not familiar with the issue of human trafficking, um, just to give you a really brief overview, it's a, it's a massive global problem. So the International Labor Organization will estimate that it's a $150 billion a year industry, fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world with uh, nearly 40 million people um, enslaved in the world today uh, through the use of force, fraud, or coercion um, brought into this reality of human trafficking. And the really sad reality, the difficult thing uh, that we face every day is that that's actually happening here um, in the US. And so I stood up uh, here about a year and a half ago, maybe two full years ago, and said, so there's this organization called Amira that believes that Psalm 12:5 is true, that because the poor are plundered and the needy grown, I will now arise, says the Lord, and I will place them in the safety for which they long. And so we said, at Amira, we simply see ourselves as the people of God who will rise with God to place these precious women in the safety that they long for. And we have a dream to open a safe home, to replicate our model that's based in Boston, to be the first long-term safe home in the state of Connecticut. Uh, and now I get to stand here today in front of you and say that that dream has become a reality. And we're sort of standing in answered prayers even as we speak. So thank you so much for uh, supporting the work that we're doing. And so many things that, um, that we could update you on, but uh, I want to just tell one story that's sort of fresh in my mind because uh, it happened um, just a few weeks ago. And I, I need to be careful with the details because we uh, want to honor women's stories who are in progress, and her story is still very much in progress. But um, as we open the home, sort of celebrating the first um, woman to enter the home, and she's become a friend of my wife and I's because we volunteer in the home regularly every other Thursday night over just community meal and dinner. And uh, we're sitting around a table, there are nine of us around the table, uh, staff and Amira uh, participants, and uh, we're just having a meal. Uh, just, it's a moment where we're able to help communicate to the women uh, subtly that, hey, not every relationship is transactional. Sometimes it's just relational. We care for you. And so there's no real agenda in that moment other than to just communicate the love of Jesus through the ministry of presence. And uh, we're talking about something as simple and silly as gaining weight when you get married. So um, I've been married for six months now, and, uh, and I just communicated that in the first three weeks of marriage, I gained 11 pounds, which I felt like was impressive, right, <laughs> worth mentioning. And uh, someone said, well, it doesn't look like you gained a ton of weight. You look like you're in pretty good shape. And I said, well, I actually just went on a really long hike and, and lost a ton of weight. And uh, one of the women at the table said, um, well, you must have, like, climbed a mountain or something if you lost weight on a hike. And I said, actually, I climbed 16 mountains. Uh, and it was for Amira. There was a fundraiser called Move for Amira, and some of you did it at this church. And, uh, and I said, actually, it was for you guys. And in that moment, just immediately, she, she, tears started to, to, to stream down her face. And uh, she was asking questions, and she was a little bit confused, and she almost looked concerned. Later, she came and found my wife and I and said, you know, no one has ever done anything like that for me. She said, my whole life I've been beaten down and abused and told that I'm worthless, uh, the fact that you would do that for me, this is a, 
a turning point in my life about how I view myself. She's like, I want to get that tattooed on me somewhere. Um, and she was like, that's so cool. <laughs> and, uh, and so I just mentioned that to say, your partnership, uh, these moments are transformative. They're changing the course of women's lives who have been abused, who have been literally trafficked. Um, and, uh, and so we're just so grateful. So thank you for partnering with us. And I'm so excited to get to share a little bit more from God's word this morning, uh, in addition to just being here and saying thank you to Ryan uh, for partnering with us. And thank you to each of you for supporting our ministry. Uh, and I'm, and I'm uh, really just honored to be in this space. Um, so with that, uh, we're going to jump into the word of God this morning. So if you have a Bible or you have a phone that has a Bible app, uh, I would encourage you to open up to John 15. Uh, we're going to read 11 verses, take a little break from Galatians, uh, and jump into sort of a big picture sermon and think about the world as God sees it. So I uh, would encourage you to open up uh, to John 15. We're going to start reading in verse 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. One of the downsides of using a Bible app is sometimes you lose internet. So I may need to borrow that from you, Ryan, if that's all right. (laughs) Thank you. Even turn there for me. John 15, starting in verse 1, says this. I am the vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will bear even more fruit. You are already pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches." If a person remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit, and apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. And yet, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. This is my Father's glory, that you might bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." And as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now abide in my love. If you obey my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. My command is this, love one another as I have loved you, because greater love has no one than this, than someone should lay down their life for their friends. Let's pray. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for an opportunity to look into your word. God, we're grateful for a chance to take a break from the busyness of our lives. Maybe we're starting classes or in the midst of a busy work week or difficult things are happening at home. And we're grateful for this day, the Lord's day, to just pause, breathe, and sort of reflect on who you are and who we are and where we fit into this world. And so, Lord, I pray this morning you would give us a heavenly perspective, that you would give us your eyes to see this world and to see ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would change for some of us the way that we think about ourselves this morning, that you would do something really powerful, something beyond what I can do in a space like this, but that it would truly be 
heaven colliding with earth this morning. The love of a father speaking to beloved children. And so, God, would you speak to us through your word? Um, Use this time, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I told you that there was a story that I just heard about a boy who was attempting to transfer schools, but he lived with his aunt and his uncle who didn't really believe in him, uh, and so they were sort of halting the process, and he was having a difficult time actually getting into that school, you might say, well, what's the story? What's the story, right? There's nothing really compelling about that. But what if I told you that this was the boy who lived? What if I told you that there was tremendous anticipation and excitement and hope that as this boy emerged from obscurity, there would be real hope against real evils in the world? What if I told you that the boy's name was Harry Potter? If I told you that story, you would pay me millions of dollars and make me one of the richest people to ever live, right? What was the difference between the first telling and the second? Well, the details were the same. There's a young boy named Harry Potter who's attempting to transfer from his normal school into a different school, but his aunt and uncle didn't really believe in him and what he was up to, so they were trying to stop the progress. But the difference is, in the second telling, the second telling was infused with a sense of anticipation, hope, and ultimately a sense of purpose. There's purpose around this boy's life. He's been designated, set apart to accomplish something important, eternal, vast, hope-giving, right? That's the difference. Now, why mention that this morning? Because at the end of your life, if someone tells your story, communicates the details of your life, and they say this person was born in Massachusetts, and then they moved to Connecticut to go to UConn, they worked at Pratt & Whitney, retired at 65, and you were communicating the details of someone's life, they might say, "So, so what's the story? What's the story? Because we need purpose We need purpose to live as we were truly meant to live and be all that we were meant to be. We are created in the image of a God who has a grand purpose for this universe and for our lives to reach the fullness of a sense of contentment, of joy, and of well-being. We need purpose. We need purpose. So what's the purpose? What's the purpose for which you live? What's the purpose for which you get up in the morning and go to work or go to class? What's your purpose? How is that infused into the way that you treat your spouse or your siblings or the people around you? What is your purpose? Well, Jesus is going to speak to this, but before we get too deep into it, I want to just um, talk about some things that can sort of get in the way. Um, Recently, I took an online course called The Science of Well-Being. Um, There's a little upstart university in the southern part of Connecticut called Yale, uh, and they put out a, a, a course called The Science of Well-Being. It ended up becoming their most popular course of all time uh, among Yale students, and it had been so impactful for young 18 to 22-year-olds that they actually made it available for free to the general public online. You can go home and sign up for it today, but it's called The Science of Well-Being. What is it that truly makes people happy or gives us a sense of subjective well-being, contentment in our souls? And it was so fascinating. My wife is so sick of hearing me talk about it. Um, but if you go and, and take that course, the first five courses or the first five videos in that course all fall under the same subject headline, things that we think will make, make us happy but don't. Things that should make us happy but don't. And they go through the first five courses and they just look at consistently over time when humanity is surveyed, when you ask humanity, hey, what do you think is going to make you happy? 
What are you pursuing to give you a sense of contentment? We say generally the same five things. And we are generally and consistently wrong about those five things. So generally what we say is we need a higher salary, the perfect job, high achievement, including in relationships and the perfect spouse. We need the perfect body or a sense of um, uh, attractiveness. And then we need the right things. I need the right sort of car. I need the right home. I need the right things on the shelves to decorate my home. And if I have the right things, the right body, the right spouse, the right job, the right money, then I'll be happy. And the first five videos in that course are all about how the stud study after study, all the scientific evidence that we've compiled consistently proves those things to be wrong. So I'm not going to go into all of those. I'm not going to reteach the course. You can take it if you want to. But the one that was maybe the most interesting to me is the one that maybe if you were asked this morning, what do you need to feel more happy? What do you need to feel content or whole? The one that many of us probably wouldn't say out loud, especially because we're in a church. But the one that we sort of feel uh, just sort of subtly within us is this idea that if my salary increased, like if I just made X, then I would be happy. I could have the things that I need to be happy. And what was so fascinating is one of the studies in this course, they, they interviewed um, over 250,000 people across 30 different nations. I'm sorry, 2,500 people. That's a very different number. 2,500 people across 30 different nations, both wealthy nations and impoverished nations. And they studied this. Uh, the difference between, um, or the correlation between increased income and increased a sense of well-being or happiness or contentment. Uh, and just to, to show you um, where they landed, I want to show you just like what correlations look like. And some of you will remember this, and I'm not sure if we've got this um, available, but that's a perfect 99% correlation. So uh, on the x-axis, as your income uh, goes up, on the y-axis, your sense of sa satisfaction, well-being uh, increases. That would be a perfect correlation. Uh, this is what a 75% correlation looks like, so not exactly one-to-one, -one, but generally as your income goes up, your satisfaction goes up, this is a quarter income, 25% in, uh, correlation as income goes up, life satisfaction goes up. And they did find, spoiler, that there is a correlation. So there is a correlation between uh, your income increasing and your um, sense of well-being increasing. But just class participation uh, this morning, what do you think the correlation was? Somewhere in this, in this range. So someone throw out a number. 25%? Okay, so fairly loose. Anybody else? 30. Um, so the actual correlation was 0.1%. 0.1% correlation. And when you parse the data, the only statistically significant correlation was in impoverished nations. Impoverished nations. So in wealthier nations like America, there was almost zero correlation between your income increasing and your sense of well-being increasing. Isn't that fascinating? So once your basic needs are met, and what's so tragic about that, and the reason why I mention that is because they cited another survey, and they asked people who made $30,000 a year, how much do you think you'll need to be happy, to feel a sense of well-being? And they said, if I just made $50,000, then I could cover what I need to cover. I would be happy. I could be taken care of. My family could be taken care of. They asked people who made $50,000, how much do you think you'll need to be happy? They said, I need $100,000. If I just had $100,000, I could be happy. They asked people who made $100,000, how much do you think you'll need to feel a sense of contentment? They said, if I just was in the $250,000 range. So they went to people who made two hundred fifty, dollars and they said, you have everything you need. Your basic needs are certainly taken care of. You even have money to be generous and to take care of the world around you. Are you happy? No. How much do you think you'll need to be happy? They said a million and so on. And that number never had a, it never had an end point. 
And so we can fall into this trap of thinking, if I just got into the next income bracket, if I just worked for this company, if I finally got that promotion or dream job, then I would be content. And the reality is almost a 0% correlation between your increased income and your increased sense of well-being. And I know for some of us this morning, that is not news. You know that. You've lived enough life to recognize that. But for others of us in this morning, there's a sense of skepticism or disbelief. Of course, the preacher would say that. But the reality is, so does Yale, right? Uh, and so does the course, the science of well-being. And so it's something that we need to wrestle with this morning. So where does a true sense of contentment or happiness or well-being come from? Well, Jesus is going to speak to this. Uh, the founder of our faith is going to speak right into this reality. And I don't know if you caught it in the passage that I read this morning in John chapter 15, but in verse 11 he says, I'm saying all of this to you, all these words that I'm communicating right now are for this singular purpose, that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. That word full is sometimes translated complete or perfect or lacking in nothing. He's like, all these words that I'm speaking to you in verse 11, it's sort of a verse that doesn't really fall into the logical flow of the passage, but he just wants to put it out there. Hey, I'm speaking to you so that you can have a true sense of contentment, of well-being, of happiness, of joy in this life. And so what does Jesus say? What are the words that he's speaking that will lead to a true sense of contentment? Well, I think it's worth pointing out, before we jump into the actual words that he's saying, uh, the context in which he's speaking. So Jesus is speaking, and in the, in the, the context of this passage is sorrow. It's sorrow. So if you were to go back a couple of chapters before to John chapter 13 and John chapter 14, you would see verses like, and their hearts were troubled, or their souls were, were troubled. There was a sense of sorrow because Jesus was saying things like, hey, where I'm going, you cannot come. It's the sense of my friend is leaving. You know, it's the sense that we get, the feeling that we get when a loved one is diagnosed with a terminal illness. It's, there's, a, there's a human sorrow to this passage. And yet in the midst of that sorrow, he's saying, if you understand these words, if you understand what I'm communicating, if you get this worldview, you can feel joy or contentment even in the midst of sorrow. But it wasn't just human sorrow. It was cosmic. There was a cosmic element to the tragedy of the context in which Jesus is speaking. Because what's happening? Jesus has just communicated to them, hey, I am marching towards the cross. There's a cosmic tragedy about to play out before you that the the uncreated creator is marching towards death. The very source of life, the eternal flame, is about to be extinguished. The very mind that created matter, matter will be used against in the form of a nail, some nails and some wood to crucify. That the heart from which love burst forth to create all of life, hatred will come against and he will be ground up in the gears of injustice. So in the midst of this very real and human and also massive and cosmic tragedy, Jesus is saying, hey, but I'm going to communicate some things to you that if you understand them, if you live in them, if you get this, you can feel contentment, you can feel joy in the midst of tragedy, both cosmic and very human. Um, and so what does he say? Well, I think before Jesus lays out his worldview, another point that will be helpful for us is just before this, in John 14.30, he says, and by the way, the ruler of this world is about to have his way. The ruler of this world is about to have his way. And it may surprise you, 
that oftentimes throughout your New Testament, in both the Gospels and in the Epistles, the ruler of this world, or the prince of the power of the air, is referring to what our Bible will call the adversary, or the Satan, or the great enemy of our joy. And so C.S. Lewis said this. He said, um, he said, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was to be the power behind death and disease and sin. Christianity does agree with dualism that this universe is at war, but it doesn't think that it's a war between independent powers. It thinks it's a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in the part that is occupied by the rebel. C.S. Lewis says that one of the things that really surprised me when I first read the New Testament is that it took this idea of an evil power seriously. And the way that the New Testament lays out where we fit into the context of the world around us is that we're living in what he calls enemy-occupied territory. He says that when Jesus came, it was like he parachuted into enemy-occupied territory to begin a resurgence, what he calls his great campaign of sabotage. And uh, it's interesting because Lewis wrote this during World War II at a time when their allies, the allied France, had been occupied by Nazi Germany. That the Nazi military war machine had rode into France in their tanks, took down the French flags that symbolized liberty and fraternity, and they hoisted in its place the symbol of hatred and the swastika and the Nazi flag. And Lewis is saying, the world that we live in is like Nazi-occupied France. And the Christian's role and the role of Jesus is that he parachuted in to enemy-occupied territory to begin a great campaign of sabotage. I love that. And so, and, and so that's what Jesus is speaking into. The ruler of this world is about to have his way. And yet God is not inactive. And so John chapter 15, verse 1, he says, My father is the gardener, or the vine dresser, and I am the vine. And so God is not inactive. He arrives on the scene. And what's God's great act of sabotage, according to Jesus? It's gardening, right? Gardening. He says, my father is the gardener, and I'm the vine, right? And so Jesus begins to lay out his worldview. And he says, my father's up to something. He's gardening. He's planting a vine. What's the significance of that? Jesus is going to say, and I am that vine. What is a, a vine? Um, well, in one sense, Jesus is referring to himself as the true Israel, because all throughout the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as a vine metaphorically. We don't really have time to unpack that or go into it, but in a simpler sense, what is a vine? A vine adorns a hillside, right? It brings beauty. And a vine was a foretaste of victory, because in that culture, you would drink the fruit of the vine at great festivals or celebrations like weddings, or you would drink wine at a victory party when you've had a great military victory. And so Jesus is saying in this passage, hey, God, in the midst of this world that's plagued by division and depression and darkness, in the midst of this enemy-occupied territory, my God is planting a vine that's going to bring beauty and it's going to bring a foretaste of victory. It's like in the midst of enemy-occupied territory, hoisting the rebel flag, raising the French flag, and rallying people around to fight back the darkness. God is planting a vine that brings beauty and brings a foretaste of victory. And he says, in you, you fit into this. In Jesus' worldview, he says, my father, he's the vine dresser. He's planting the vine. I, I am the vine. And you, you are the branches. You're the branches. 
And this metaphor, this agricultural metaphor, God is the vine dresser, Jesus is the vine, and through that vine will flow fruit, and you are the branches that then deliver that fruit to the world. And that's the purpose. And that's what we've been leading to. Jesus is going to speak as we, as we lay in bed at night, turn the lights out, and we're rolling through. What's the point of all this? If we're coming to the ends of our lives and we're asking, why do I exist? Why am I here? If you're just starting into life and you're in high school or you're in college and you're thinking, what's this all about? Jesus is going to speak into that and he's going to say, your purpose is to bear much fruit. I'm the vine. You're the branches. And the point of your existence is to bear fruit that will be a foretaste of the beauty and victory of the kingdom of God, heaven coming to earth to a broken and hurting world. I'm calling you to participate with me in this campaign of sabotage against the darkness in the world around us. And so I hope that transforms for some of you this morning if, if you're new to church and you always thought that Christianity was be a good person keep a certain list of things to do avoid another list of things not to do Jesus is saying no the purpose of Christianity is to be in me so that you can bear fruit that will be a foretaste of beauty and victory to the world around you that's what it means to be a Christian and to walk with Jesus and to know him He's saying, my God, our Father, is the vine dresser. I'm the vine, you're the branches, and from you is going to flow beauty and a foretaste of victory to a broken and dying and hurting world around you. He says, I'm the vine dresser. I mean, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. And your purpose is to bear much fruit. Is to bear much fruit. And so what does that look like, or how do we do it practically? Well, Jesus is going to speak to that. He says, if you abide in me... If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And I think it's important to mention that as we talk about our purpose, why do you exist? And we say, your purpose is to bear fruit. That can sound pretty utilitarian. Like, so you're saying my purpose is just to, to do things, to produce things? Like my value is tied to what I can bring to the world? I think the way that our minds react that way sometimes is because we're born post-industrial revolution. We've got in mind processes and systems and machines and robots. That, was in, that wasn't in the mind of this original audience. This was, pre, this was an agricultural metaphor. See, machines produce results. Robots produce matter. But, but vines grow fruit organically. It's this organic process. And how does fruit emerge from a branch? Fruit emerges from a branch that's connected to the source. That's connected to the source. And so Jesus is saying, the first thing that you need to know about your purpose is just abide in me, remain in me, stay really close to me. And he says specifically, abide in my love. And for some of us, that's the grand takeaway this morning. Abide in my love that we can't truly fulfill the purpose that we have in this life until we really grasp the love that the God of this universe has for you. And for some of us, that's hard because life has been difficult and we haven't experienced that love on a human level. But, but Jesus is saying, if you really want to live your purpose, you've got to abide in my love. Eleven times he'll say abide or remain or dwell. You've got to live in the love of God for you. So maybe that's the only takeaway that you get this week. 
to meditate on this, to live in this, to make the love of God your home, to sit before him in the morning or before you go to bed and remember this great love, this great story of God leaving the comforts of heaven to come to earth to sacrifice everything for you simply because he loves you. Abide in my love. But if we're going to abide in the love of God, we've got to understand that his love is not inactive. His love is on the move. His love is indiscriminate. It moves towards people like us, who look like us, laugh at the same jokes as us, have the similar life experience as us, but it also moves towards people that are nothing like us and look nothing like us and whose life experiences are in no way similar to ours. God's love is on the move, right? So I just mentioned uh, before we started, I've been married for about six months, and I remember the season, the the couple-of-week window, where I realized that this girl that I'm dating, uh, she's she's not just a friend. I love her. This is not just another woman in the world. This is a woman that I love. And that prompted in me action, right? We dated for about six months before we went long distance. And and, and when I realized I love this woman, I started writing letters. I'd never written a letter in my life, right? I started cooking meals. I learned one of her favorite meals so I could make it for her on her birthday. I had never cooked in my life, right? Uh, When we were long distance, I started getting on planes and trains and buses just to move towards her because love prompts action, right? And so if we're going to stay close to God, and we're going to abide in his love. We've got to realize that God is on the move. He is, he is active. His love sins in this world. And so we need to abide in his love. That means getting close to him, recognizing the love that he has for me, and then getting caught up in his rescuing, redeeming activity for this world. Abide in my love. How do we abide in his love? He says, if you keep my commandments, in verse 9, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. How do you live in the love of God? How do you make that your home? How do you dwell there? He says, you will abide in my love if you keep my commandments. So when my wife and I moved into our apartment, a friend gave us some plants. And they said, here are some plants that'll make your home nice, spruce it up, provide trace amounts of oxygen that'll be good for you. And, uh, and so here are some commandments that go with these plants. You've got to give them plenty of water, and you've got to make sure that they've got plenty of sunlight. If you don't, they'll wither and they'll die. Jesus is saying it's the same for you. Abide in my love. How? By keeping my commandments. And sometimes the commandments of God can feel restrictive, but what he's saying, if you really think about it, is keep my commandments like those plants. Bask in the sunshine of my love. Drink deeply from the rivers of my delights. And when you do, and you li- when you live in the commandments of God, you will burst forth into fruit and life. So abide in my love. How? By keeping his commandments. What are his commandments? Verse 12. And this is my commandment, that you would love one another as I have loved you. This is my commandment, that you would love each other, the people around you, in the same way that I loved you. How did Jesus love us? Verse 13. There is no greater love than this, then you should lay down your life for your friends. And that's the crux. That's the pinnacle. This is ultimately what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There is no greater love, there is no greater expression of love than this, than to live sacrificially for the world around you. And so, um, in closing, I just finished reading a book um, called Beneath the Scarlet Sky. They're making a movie about it starring uh, Tom Holland who plays Spider-Man in, I think, pre-production at the moment. Uh, But it's a story of a 17-year-old boy who lived in Milan, Italy during World War II. 
And uh, it's a true story. Um, it's, it's historical fiction, so he writes a story around it, but all the details are true. And it's a story of the 17-year-old boy who um, his parents send him to Casa Alpina, the house of the mountains. Uh, and it was a Catholic monastery where he could be safe from the bombings and the horrors of war. And as he's up in the mountains at this Casa Alpina, this retreat house, um, one of the priests who runs the house starts sending him on these long hikes, making him wake up at 3 and 4 in the morning, getting up and taking these sort of wild and treacherous hikes through the Italian Alps over towards Switzerland. And he doesn't really know why, but he sort of trusts the priest and he just does it. And as he does it day by day, he feels a little more life. He feels a little more strength. City boy sort of becomes, you know, comfortable in the mountains. And then there's a moment in the book that to me is sort of the pinnacle. And that's at the beginning, so I'm not, it's not a major spoiler, but if you're interested in reading it, I think it's still worth reading it. But the father pulls him into a chapel and he looks at him and he says, hey, you may not be aware of this, but there's a group called the SS who are going around Italy at a time when the war seems to be not going in their direction, and they're systematically executing people of Jewish descent. They're finding them on the street, lining them up in front of buildings, and executing them. And he said, and, and in response to that, Casa Alpina, this little monastery up in the mountains, has been, it's become a safe harbor. It's a safe place for people of Jewish descent. We've been hiding them here. And yet, if they find us, and they find them, we will all be executed. So we've got to find a way to get them through the mountains into neutral Switzerland. And so the reason why I've been sending you on these hikes early in the morning is so that you could be their guide, so that you could be their guide. And I want you to go in with open eyes. If you're found, you will be executed. But will you step into this? Will you step into this with love? And, um, and he says, he says, yes. And, um, and he begins to, to guide these these desperate people through the mountains and into freedom. And, um, and so I mentioned I'm, I'm newly married, and generally in our relationship, I go to bed earlier and she goes to bed later. But when I was reading this book, I would be up until like 1 or 2 in the morning. Like She's like, are we going to bed now? And I'm like, not now, babe. This woman's pregnant, and he's guiding her through the mountains, and I can't leave him now. Um, but it's this really powerful story. And I think it's a beautiful picture of who we're meant to be as Christians. And it's a beautiful picture of who we are at Amira, that we look around and we see these people who the world has beat down, who has told them that they're worthless, that they're, they're, the entire sum of their experiences is tragedy, it's chaos, and yet we move towards them in love and we say, hey, if you'll follow us, we can be your guide to freedom. We'll give you a safe place and a safe harbor. And we can't do it for you. You've got to do it. No one's here to rescue you, but we are here to be a guide for you that we can guide you through the, these mountains, give you resources so that you can move towards freedom, liberation, and hope. And I think that's such a great metaphor for who we're meant to be as Christians, to be a safe harbor, a safe place, that as we look around at those who are hurting, those who have been damaged by this world, we say, but come with us, because we have for you a foretaste of beauty and a foretaste of the ultimate victory of God, where he will one day come and wipe every tear from our eyes and make all things new to redeem this world. And so we're celebrating the opening of our home. And I thought it would be worth just reading a, a quick passage um, about the story of a fir the first woman that ever came into one of Amira's safe homes. Her name is Jess. Our CEO tells the story of this woman coming into the home, being cagey, wearing sunglasses, unable to trust, unable to show affection and love. But then with a little bit of prodding, she starts to open up. And she tells the story. 
She says, as the weeks unfolded, I put into practice the meditation of my heart, laid down my life and my love for this woman. So I laid down my pride and my hurt feelings. I laid down my lofty goals and dreams, and I came to her with humility and offered her love. After a few weeks, her sunglasses came off. Another week passed, and we were laughing together. And then as the difficulties of things came up, she receded back into her shell. But Stephanie goes on, but I loved, I prayed, I waited. By the end of this first season, she was asking questions that I could have only dreamt about. Why do you stick with this, Steph? Why are you doing this for me? So I shared with her about the someone who loved me when I felt unlovable. And when she asked me if she could come to church with me, I said, of course. She came, she experienced, she cried and she wept, and she began to ask more questions. I let her ask, and I did my best to answer. At the end, I asked my own question. Would you like to come back next week? Another week would come with another experience, another Sunday of tears and questions. Then on the fourth Sunday, I noticed that there was something different about her. The tears were still there, but the questions were fading away. A nudge inside of me said she was ready for the answer. I asked her at the end of the service what she wanted to pray about, and she responded, Steph, I don't want to be bought and sold anymore. That's amazing, Jess, I responded, because Jesus has bought you, and he will never sell you. And right there in front of her was the answer. The unconditional love she had been searching for her entire life. The amazing thing is that when you aim at heaven in your life, the endless cycle of evil melts away. Don't get me wrong. I'm deeply saddened by the evil in this world, but I'm not driven to despair. I am driven by love. And that's a beautiful picture of who we're meant to be to the world around us. When we see the darkness, the division, the chaos, the difficulty, and the hurting, to not be driven to despair, but be driven by love. And as we do, we watch as fruit springs forth from our nearness to Jesus to bring beauty and victory to this world. And so we get close to him, abide in his love, keep his commandments, which are to lay down our lives for our friends. That's what it means to know and to walk with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this morning and grateful again for an opportunity to just think about your word. Lord, I pray that you would, um, that you would do things in, in our hearts this morning that um, maybe we didn't realize, we didn't wake up thinking that would, would happen this morning, but that you would, God, truly speak to us, that, that you would be near to us and that you would give us a vision of what it means to, to see the world around us and not be in despair, but to see the world around us and be driven by love to know that one day ultimate victory will come and in the meantime, we can get close to you and as a result, we can bear fruit. And so no matter the circumstances of our lives, no matter what we're going through, no matter what's happened to us and no matter what we've done in the world around us, when we abide in you, when we get close to your love, we will bear fruit and we can feel the purpose in this life that is so lacking in the world around us but that can fill us with hope and contentment and joy to know that we're close to you and you're redeeming all of this and you're allowing us to be a part of it. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. For letting me be here with you uh, this morning. I, I want to just say, if you're interested in Amira or want to learn more about it, 
I'll just be at the back after the service. Come say hi, uh, ask a couple more questions, just so you know if you're in a hurry and you've got to jet out of here. We've got a couple of things uh, that you can do if you want to get involved. Um, we're, we're right now really looking for volunteers, so a lot of volunteer opportunities with either the children's uh, ministry here or with Amira and, and so many other things. But uh, my wife and I volunteer every other Thursday. We just eat dinner with the women. It's, it's often the best part of our weeks. And so if you're interested in volunteering, uh, we've got a couple of, of uh, info sessions coming up. It's not signing in blood. It's not committing to volunteer. But you can just uh, pick a Thursday night, uh, sit down, and hear a little bit more about Amira. And you can volunteer in the home. I started volunteering as a 25-year-old, uh, and that changed the course of my life. And so would really encourage you to consider that, to pray about that. Um, if you're interested in giving, uh, we have what we call Hope Partners who give $20 a month. Uh, I started doing that also at 25. I was in school, so I didn't have a ton of money, but I did have enough money for, for Netflix. If, and so I just sort of figured if I've got 10 bucks a month for Netflix, I've got 10 bucks a month to help end modern day uh, slavery. So if you're interested in partnering with us in those ways, you can do that. Uh, if you're interested in any more questions about the organization, please meet me after. And now we're going to close in a time of worship.